ahead and have a seat. Uh, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, Larry is going to grab a few back on that table. Um, and throw your hand in the air, and he'll be happy to hand you one. It's important for you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you, whether it be on your phone or paper copy. Um, it's important for you to see the things that we're talking about from God's Word, to see that they're not being made up, but we're actually uh, we're spending time together uh, considering what God is communicating to us about who He is. So as we this morning look at Matthew chapter 5, we're continuing in the Beatitudes. We're continuing. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a little while now. Um, and, uh, and and what we want to do is, is continue to think through these, these eight statements that Jesus makes to his disciples at the outset of this sermon. At the outset of the Sermon on the Mount, we want to think through these eight statements. So we've been exploring these together, uh, we've been processing these Beatitudes. All of these statements begin with the word blessed. All of these statements begin with the word blessed, they begin with the word happy, um, your Bible might say. But the idea is that God favors these ones. These ones that, that are contained here, or that Jesus is speaking about in, in verses 2 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5. Um, Jesus is pronouncing or saying that they are blessed by God. And he starts with the Beatitudes because he really wants us to, to see, first and foremost, that uh, Jesus wants us to see here, first and foremost, that God does first, and then we do second. God does first, and then we do second. What we do doesn't earn God's favor. Rather, what God's favor, rather God's favor is pronounced upon us, and then we're empowered to live lives that honor Him. So He starts out with these eight statements of blessing, and He gives them clearly to His disciples. And in that, the Beatitudes build. We've talked about four of these so far. Talking about four of these bad attitudes so far, they're not just individual statements that should be taken one at a time and applied to us. By the way, we should see these as a as a whole host of, of things and demeanors and qualities and characteristics that Jesus is telling us make up a people who inhabit the kingdom of heaven. So if you think back to these four that we've talked about, Jesus starts out in verse 3 with, Blessed are the poor in spirit. He starts out with, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I think he begins here because this is a sense of emptiness. There's a sense of emptiness that starts here for uh, Jesus' disciples. These are the ones who are the inheritors of the kingdom of heaven is what Jesus says. And he'll actually use that promise again in verse 10 when he says, blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake. But these ones, the, those who are poor in spirit are the inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. These are ones who recognize that there's nothing in that that earns God's favor again, but it's God's grace granted to them. It's God's grace granted to them. Outside of God's grace, uh, they have nothing. They are bankrupt spiritually. They are poor in spirit. The second one is those who mourn. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a correct view of sin in our own lives. That's what Jesus is communicating. Blessed are those who mourn over their own sin. Uh, blessed are those who uh, understand the root problem of their poverty of spirit. Why are they ones that are poor in spirit? Because of their sin. Because of the sin that separates them from God. Comfort is then given to these um, because they understand that their, spirit, their sin has been dealt with by the blood of Jesus. And one day, every tear will be wiped away. They understand this. They have this, this in, in view. Go on to verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And here we have a proper outworking, or a beginning to properly outwork 
or, or live out of the one who is poor in spirit and mourns over his or her sin. This individual realizes that the interactions with others are informed by their spiritual poverty and sinful state. When you realize, when you think to yourself, when you see uh, that your that all that you have that is good is a gift from God and not a result of your own conjuring, when you see that, you will think differently about yourself and how you relate to others. Blessed are the, those who are meek. Those who are meek are those who do not demand their own rights. They don't demand their own rights. Rather, they see that they really don't have any. We assess ourselves differently. And that's what meekness contains for us. And last week we talked about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Your Bible might say they will be filled. Unless we explore this beatitude. Jesus wants us here to hear that God's commands, when God commands his people, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to move to a lot of different commands or biblical imperatives Jesus is going to give to his disciples. But Jesus wants his hearers to hear that God's commands are something that they need. It's not something that's burdensome to his followers, but something to delight in. Um, David in the Psalms records that uh, that he takes delight in the law of the Lord and the commands that God gives to to, uh, his people. And why is this? Because in keeping God's commands, we most clearly reflect who God is. (laughs) By keeping God's commands, we most clearly reflect who God is. God isn't giving us an arbitrary, random set of parameters for us to live in. Rather, He is showing us how we can be like Him. That's why God gives us commands. When He tells His people that we will be holy if we are His people, that we will be holy like He is holy, He's telling us that our aim should be to reflect Him, to be like Him in our set-apartness. His commands that follow them even when they're inconvenient or uncomfortable or weird or strange. These are intended to set us apart from the world. So if we together as people are painting a kingdom portrait, like we've talked about, we've used that metaphor, we together as a people, if we are in Christ, we are painting something, we are painting a picture for for God or for the world. As God's people, we're painting this picture. Then we will look strange, we will look weird, we will look different to the world because of this list of beatitudes. When we follow God's commands, even when they're, again, when they're, even when they're inconvenient, um, we uh, are reflecting who God is. And again, we don't keep commands to earn something. That's clearly communicated here. We don't keep commands to earn something. That, that's what we call legalism. That's what we call legalism. If we keep commands and we think that we'll earn something from them, mainly our salvation, that's what we call legalism. But we don't ignore commands or make them personal preference because in doing so, we prove that we don't belong to God but belong to the world. And when you're starving, again, to to run with Jesus' metaphor here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. When you're starving or dying of hunger, you don't hold out for your favorite food. You eat what's available. When God shows you how to reflect who He is by keeping His commands, you don't ignore it. You hunger and thirst for it. You take delight in it. And in it you find satisfaction. So since we want to view these all as one unit here, since we want to look at these together this morning, let's just read verses 2 through 12 in Matthew chapter 5 together. We'll read the whole this whole text. 
And then we're going to consider two more of these this morning, verses 7 and 8 in particular. Blessed are the merciful, and blessed are the pure in heart. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So again, let's look together at blessed are the merciful and then also blessed are the pure in heart. What is Jesus talking about? So following on the heels of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we see that Jesus wants to give his hearers sort of these positive qualities, these positive outworkings, these positive characteristics or demeanors. And so as we begin to look at these ones, these ones probably feel a little bit more familiar to us. The idea of mercy, the idea of purity, those are ideas that are a little more familiar to us uh, as opposed to something like meekness, which is not a word that is in our vocabulary very regularly. We don't talk about people as being meek regularly. But mercy is something that, that, that we can get. So what we don't want to do is, is be lulled into a sense that these would be easier to hear. Okay? These things are not going to be easier for, for Jesus' hearers to, to hear. Again, the blessedness that's pronounced upon these people as God's favor is given to them um, sort of in this sort of strange way. While Matthew's hearers or Matthew's readers would have been longing for sort of this political and militaristic deliverance, they get a, they get a king who shows up and pronounces himself king and then starts talking about uh, these qualities that, that don't, don't result in anything, at least in their own minds, at least in the immediate at least in the physical. So these most certainly would have continued to push the ideas that don't make a lot of sense to both Jesus' hearers and subsequently Matthew's readers. These ideas, both blessed are the merciful and blessed are the pure in heart, would have been offensive. Um, so now we look at the first one. The first one here, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we ask the question, what's so difficult to digest about mercy? What's so difficult to, to think through? When, we're, when we see verse 7, it seems pretty straightforward. I think what makes this difficult is that it does come right on the heels as blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because it makes this, like we discussed last week, it makes this no longer preference, but it makes it need. No longer makes it a, a, something that we think to ourselves, well, I'll do that when I get around to it. Rather, it's a, a demeanor. Or it's, it's now become an identity. It's not something that you do. It's who you are. It doesn't say, blessed are those who do mercy. He says, blessed are the merciful. This is contained with now, in their, with now within their identity. This is not based on action, but based on identity. And the action flows out of identity. And I think that's a much harder pill to swallow for us, especially as the New Testament paints the picture of the believer. It's a much uh, harder pill for us to swallow. We don't get to pick and choose when we're a new creation. 
We're always a new creation. We don't get to think about our rewiring and then act in the way when we want to. We're going to rewire our thinking when we look together at, at, at the Beatitudes. It's not acting mercifully that makes you merciful. It's being merciful that results in acting mercifully. And the New Testament is fraught with these ideas. It's not acting generously that makes you generous. It's being generous that makes you act generously. It's not being obedient that makes you a new creation. It's being a new creation that empowers you and makes you obedient. The Christian life, then, is not, not about what you do, but it's about who you are. So blessed are the merciful, then. What about this identity that we have, blessed are the merciful, what does this mean? First, we have to ask a question, the question, how does the Bible define mercy? What, what's the mercy that Jesus talks about here? Many times in our vocabulary, grace and mercy kind of get mixed up. We kind of mix these two, two things up. We need to make a distinction because there are two different words, and Jesus spoke very clearly. So this is the best summary of what I can give to you this morning without diving in and taking a ton of time in a bunch of different texts. Grace deals with sin. The grace of God deals with our sin. It removes us from our sin, or removes our sin, the sin from us. But mercy, in particular, deals with the effects of sin in our world. Mercy deals with the effects of sin in our world. It might be helpful to think of a couple parables, two parables that we're probably mostly all familiar with, as you quoted a lot, and, and whether you're familiar uh, with the Bible or not, the Good Samaritan, right? I was watching a TV show last night. They quoted, they, they spoke about the Good Samaritan. Not didn't have anything to do with the Bible. Just said Good Samaritan. <coughs> this is something that we're familiar with. So the Samaritan man in the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter ten, he finds a man beaten on the side of the road, and he binds up his wounds and he cares for him, and he pays the he pays for the whole endeavor um, when he takes him to an inn. And this is a picture then of God's mercy. This is a picture of God's mercy shown to us. Uh, we are broken and beat up by sin. As people, we're broken and beat up by sin. And God's mercy shows up and deals with the effects of sin in our lives. And the warrior who asked Jesus the question, who is my neighbor at the outset of that parable, comes around to the end and Jesus said, which of, this, which of these is, a, is, the, is the neighbor? Which one of these demonstrates love to his neighbor? And, and the, the lawyer says to him, the one who showed mercy. On the flip side, grace, when we're thinking about grace, think about the prodigal son. This is another pretty popular parable. Think about the prodigal son. The son runs off with the father's inheritance. He squanders it all in the world. And when he returns after hitting rock bottom, the father welcomes him home with open arms. And despite sinning against God, he shows us grace by welcoming us back into right relationship with him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is grace. Sin dealt with. Mercy, dealing with the effects of sin. Richard Lenski writes, Mercy extends relief, grace extends pardon. The one cures, heals, helps, and the other cleanses and reinstates. Martin Lloyd-Jones defines the, the two in this way. Grace is especially associated with men in their sins. Mercy is especially associated with men in their misery. So all of this then happens together in, in, in concert through Jesus' work on the cross. But mercy is what we're thinking about this morning. So mercy, the way that we're going to define it is, is understanding and 
dealing with the effects of sin in our world. This is what Jesus is calling us to. Blessed or God's favor is on those who are dealing with the effects of sin in the world, for the effects of sin uh, will be dealt with on their behalf. So blessed are the merciful then. Here's the order of things, and this is important. You have been shown mercy, right? You have been called merciful, and you show mercy in return. So practically then, practically, the follower of Jesus as we think about, uh, think about mercy, blessed are the merciful, is called to deal with the effects of sin in his or her world as part of their identity. So what does that look like? Again, John Stott writes that the beatitude is closely linked with uh, another beatitude, uh, blessed are the meek. He writes this, For to be meek is to acknowledge to others that we are sinners. To be merciful is to have compassion on, on others that they are sinners too. So since meekness is really a proper assessment of oneself, since meekness is really a proper assessment of oneself, mainly that we are sinners, and relating to others out of that understanding and humility and self-forgiveness. Being merciful, that is, seeing others as being in the same boat and mourning over that reality. And seeking to work with them to bring them out of that reality. Charles Quarrel says, The merciful are those who can relate to others with a forgiving and compassionate spirit. So it's freely allowing oneself to recognize the sheer destructive capability of sin in our lives and the lives of others, and then being prepared and willing to act. So there's a couple of important things, I think, for us to note, just as a body, as a church, a couple of important things for us to note coming out of this, this beatitude. First, sin and its effects do not make us victims. Sin and its effects do not make us victims. This one runs rampant among Christians. We look at sin and we see its effects on our world and we think to ourselves, boy, the sinful stuff that's going on around me makes me a victim. But Paul makes it very clear uh, in the opening chapters of the letter to the Romans that we're completely responsible for our sin. The effects of sin are, are running rampant because of the choices made or the choice made in the garden and the ongoing choices that we make regularly. These effects are not imposed on us despite our desires but are a result of our sinful desires and our actions that are in line with these desires. Sin and its effects do not make us victims. We are called to act mercifully. We are called to act to actively love people who are, who, are, uh, who are in a tough place because of their sin or because of the sin of others, but sin does not make us victims. Second, mercy is not just mere niceness or tolerance. Sin is not mere niceness or tolerance. Again, sometimes this, or mercy is not niceness or tolerance. Sometimes this gets, we reduce this to just a, an overall demeanor and niceness. I'll get out of your way, you get out of my way type of, type of interaction. But mercy is much more active. Mercy is much more active. Mercy is love and compassion and forgiveness. Mercy is not a live and let live mentality. It's being prepared to work to care for those who are experienced the dramatic effects of sin. So mercy challenges the status quo then. Mercy challenges the status quo because it looks at what is happening in people's world and it doesn't back out and say, oh man, that's gross, I'm not going to touch that. 
Mercy understands that what we're experiencing here on earth is not the way that things are intended to be, but seeks to offer relief, seeks to offer relief from sickness, from pain, from disease, from death, from trauma, from pride, from slander, from greed, and the list, the list could go on and on. And these are the effects of sin. We who are in Christ are merciful and we are painting a kingdom portrait. We're painting a kingdom portrait by offering relief to those who are experiencing these things. And this, this points to a greater reality. This points to a future, a, a, a fuller realization of our, our, our own humanity. John describes this future reality for those who are in Christ who were all or, or were when they were affected by sin and when sin then is dealt with comprehensively. He writes this. This is Revelation 21, 3 and 4. He writes this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Here, John is recognizing that we are new creations. We are new creations. We are bearing witness to the conclusion of former things. We are bearing witness to a world that is mired and beat down by, by sin. And as those who are merciful, again, if we're in Christ, this is us. As those who are merciful, we are painting a kingdom portrait by offering relief to the effects of sin. We are painting the picture of what is coming in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. We're pulling back the curtain and we're allowing the world to see that the temporary reality that contains tears and death and mourning crying and pain, all of this is passing away. So how can we do this together? How could we be those who are merciful? First thing is simple. Be available to one another in difficult times even when it's inconvenient. Be available to one another in difficult times even when it's inconvenient. When sickness or when slander or when stress, when these things take over our world, listen to the struggles of others. Right? People are complex. Right? We, this, there, there's not a quick, easy fix. I think sometimes we, we see people's problems and we say, boy, if they just did X, Y, and Z, everything would be better. I think we're quick to look at people and just say that. We're just like, look at, look at the thing that they're going through, just let them do this, this thing. I think this is a, also an encouragement to us as a body. If you identify with Buffalo City Church, you're part of this church, I think that it's, it's a, good, a good opportunity for us to talk about the fact that we're all situated in a particular place in life, and no one else is, is in that exact same place. So we tend to be myopic, we tend to be, uh, we tend to be nearsighted and think about our world and the things that are going on, for me, as a dad of young children, I, I sit down and I see other people who have young children and, and we kind of have this connection point. And yet, the complexities of raising my children are different than the complexities of someone else raising someone else's children. And so, and, and, then, and then we have a bigger gap, right? You might have grown children, you might have adult children, you might not have children at all, you might be single. 
This is a good opportunity for us to get out of our own space and start investing in the space of others. And to look at their playbook and to say, what does your day-to-day look like as someone who is in a completely different stage of life than me? It's hard to show mercy to someone if, if we're not willing to sit down and to be available to them, even when it's inconvenient. It's not a convenient thing for me to do, is to, to wrap my mind around where other people in different seasons of life are. And yet, that's what we're called to do. If we, if we don't do that, if we don't sit down and listen to the struggles of others and to process together where they're at, it's going to be really difficult to show mercy to those individuals. We're going to prescribe some, some thing from our experience or our life or whatever, that, that might not be actually all that helpful to them. Because of Jesus' work, right? Revelation 21, 3 and 4, right? The wiping away of tears and the ending of death and the, the ceasing of mourning and crying and pain, right? This is what it requires, this requires upfront investment for us. This isn't going uh, to happen without establishing kind of some kind of relationship. So we pop in and pop out, whatever is convenient for us, this is just not going to happen. So know that those who God has placed around you in Buffalo City Church in your immediate community, know that those who have played God has placed around you, and then work to and or work where you live so that you might offer mercy to those who are hurting. I guarantee that every single person in this place is a place where they're hurting right now. Where something just isn't going quite the way that they want it to be going. Or maybe it's sickness, maybe it's, maybe it's disease, maybe it's pain, maybe, maybe they're experiencing mourning in a dramatic way because of the loss of a loved one. There, the list goes on and on. We can, we can think about different ways that people are regularly uh, hurting in our, in our world. But without establishing a relationship and without spending time together and knowing each other and, and understanding that people overall are complex, it's going to be very difficult for us to demonstrate to others uh, are, are merciful. This, this just continues on this theme throughout the Beatitudes, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, where it's us getting out of the way of ourselves and being self-forgetful and, and thinking about the fact that, that, that we're not the center of the universe. Right? My four-year-old, we have this conversation regularly. Dude, you're not the center of the universe. Like, it, it just it, that this is not the way that, that we were intended to live. We give our devotion to others, but we're quick to devote ourselves to ourselves only. So that's the first thing. And we do this practically, be available to one another in difficult times, even when it's inconvenient. Second thing, be quick to forgive. Be quick to forgive. I think mercy contains the idea of forgiveness, and others will frustrate you and hurt you. They will, guarantee you. There is, there is literally no way that we can together, even get together even just once a week as a group of people and not be frustrated by something that someone's doing in the one hour that we're together here on Sunday morning. And if you're together more than that in a community group or, or just together regularly with people who are around you, those people are going to frustrate you. They're going to make you upset. And it's guaranteed because they're sinful. They're dealing with the effects of sin in their world. You're dealing with the effects of sin in your world. This is just the reality. But rather than seek to retaliate, be quick to forgive. Don't run to others and express what so-and-so did you. Can you believe what so-and-so did? Don't be quick to do that. Rather be quick to go to that person and say, brother, I forgive you. Sister, I forgive you for the things that you sinned uh, against me. And if I have done wrong to you, please let me know also. Be quick to forgive. Be quick to reconcile. Forgive as you've been forgiven. So that's the second thing. Be quick to forgive. Third, 
Seek to grow deeper in your understanding of God's mercy shown to you in your own life. So again, this is, this is the root. This is the core of what we're talking about. If, if we do not understand the mercy that's been demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus, then we're not going to act mercifully. We're not going to act as those who are, are, are merciful. So understand this sin that separates from you God, from God, and that God's grace towards you has made you a new creation, and that sin's ultimate effect, death, sin's ultimate effect is death, that is no longer your final destination. Rather, life in God's presence for all of eternity, completely free from sin, that's where you're going to end up. So last thought for this beatitude, then we'll move on. Uh, for they shall receive mercy, right? That's the promise here. For they shall receive mercy. Again, this is not a result, but a promise given to those who, who are merciful, whose identity is merciful. That you will show uh, mercy, and you will then receive mercy. And to be shown mercy, then you understand and know that mercy has been shown to you. You will receive mercy because you have been shown mercy, and as a new creation have been made to be merciful. Prior to becoming a new creation, you are incapable of mercy, but through the Spirit of Christ, you are now able to demonstrate mercy. So as those who are in Christ, we are merciful because we have been shown great mercy in Christ. Jesus, again, the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the example of the Good Samaritan. He's bound up our wounds. He has carried us out of sin. He has prepared a place for us, free from the effects of sin. So blessed are the merciful they shall receive mercy. So next then, Jesus moves on. Look at verse 8 with me then. Next. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. They, what's, up, what's this about? This, is, this seems like a, a, a relatively dramatic shift. But simply put, by, by Jesus saying, blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus is talking about two things. He's talking about undivided affection. And he's talking about undivided attention. Undivided affection and undivided attention. So what do, we, what do we mean by this? So the idea of purity, right, is that it's undivided, it's unmixed, it's, it's pure, it's, it's single-focused. Undivided affections, then. There's the question. This is a question for us. What do you love? What do you, what do you love? We ask this question pretty regularly because it's so important. What do you love? We say things like, well, oh, oh God, oh Jesus, we, we talk like that regularly. But, the, but really ask the question at, at our core, what do you love? Do you love God with all that you are? Or do you, do you seek his, the gift, that gift of himself that he's granted to you in Christ? Do you see that as the greatest thing that you could receive? Or are your affections split? Are the things that you love split? Do you love money? You love earthly comfort. You love experiences. It's wired in all of us. We're all wired to love. This is good. God created us. But we're wired to, uh, we, we were originally intended and wired to, to love Him first. And because of the effects of sin, we, we are regularly loving something else. So then we move to, to undivided affections, right? What do you love? And then undivided attention. Where your affections or your loves are focused is then where you're going to spend the most time. It's where your thoughts will linger and where you'll invest that time. This isn't like 
This isn't like romantic comedy love, right? It's not rom-com love. This is like a relentless pursuit of your whole being over something. It could be a person, but it might be something else. You're, what is that? We're going to ask that question. What is that? Explore, explore yourself. Again, we ask this question regularly. What consumes the majority of your thoughts? What consumes the majority of your thoughts? If you really reflect on that, what, what consumes the majority? Even if you're not acting on it, what are you thinking about regularly because it's sort of like your happy place, right? Talk about that. What's your happy place? So I thought about this a week, and for me, I think that it's like aesthetic beauty, right? I can, I can like take a breath and like, and like some, everything, so I'm, I'm an ordered person. I like things to sort of be lined up. Like if the pens are sitting on the table, they all need to be boom, 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 right in a row. Like it's just the way that it needs to be. There needs to be symmetry. There needs to be, or, or imbalance or whatever the, the, it calls for, whatever, whatever this calls for, right? I'm sort of on this like houseplant kick. I like houseplants. My kids bought me houseplants for Father's Day. I don't know why I'm admitting that. This is the way that, the way that I am. I, I, I like aesthetic beauty. These plants are beautiful. I like them. I'm going to put them in my office and I'm going to breathe clear air. So, again, I, and even, even you probably think yourself, what, what are you talking about? So, I'm going to come across as this logical wooden in the box type. So like, I think probably, or maybe it's just this complex I have. So I feel like I'm a frustrated artist. Who just can't like has nothing anyway. <laughs> I I like aesthetic beauty. Maybe that's just what I want myself to be. I like aesthetic. I like the aesthetic of words, right? I like I like the way the Bible is written. I like literature. I like these things. How they hit the ear. How they stimulate the mind. How they how they move us to something greater, almost. So I think about these things a lot. That's what I thought about. Like, what did I spend a lot of time this week thinking about? Which I think about of aesthetic beauty. For, for us, it's probably something, for you, it's probably something else. It's probably either your work or hobbies or, or, or kids or home or your body or, or money. And, and so, what I don't want you to hear me say when I'm talking about this is that these things are bad. Right? These things aren't bad. They're just made to, 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 to point us to something else. These things aren't bad. What we think of or our thoughts linger on. What, what makes. They just make really bad gods, I guess is what I'm saying. These things aren't, aren't things that, that, that can fulfill us ultimately, but rather should seek to point us to, to something else. I love what James K. Smith writes in his book, aptly titled, You Are What You Love. To be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. So the question is whether you will love something as ultimate, so the question, I'm sorry, so the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. And you are what you love. So what will you love as ultimate? What will you love as final? What's that final resting place for your love? Will it be work, hobby, kids, home, aesthetic, beauty, money? Or will it be God? And Jesus says, it must be God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those whose affections, blessed are those whose attention is undivided. So what does it look like to be pure in heart? What does it look like to be... John Stott writes this, their whole life about the one who is pure in heart, their whole life, public and private, is transparent before God and men. Their very heart, including their thoughts, 
and motives is pure, unmixed with anything devious, ulterior, or base. Hypocrisy and deceit are abhorrent to them. They are without guile. This is often the place where people get hung up on the whole church thing. What a bunch of hypocrites. What a bunch of hypocrites. And really, honestly, in a lot of different ways, the world acts more consistently with what they say they believe than the church does. You say, well, God isn't. God's up there, he's doing something, whatever, and he's fine, he can do whatever he wants. I love money. And then they devote their entire life to the accumulation of wealth. That's not hypocritical. And then they look at the church and they say, they're no different from anyone else, they're just hypocrites. And they say they love one another, but they can only care about themselves. Maybe you're here this morning and that's what you're thinking. Maybe you're here this morning and that's what you're thinking. This is the whole church thing. There's a bunch of hypocrites. They say they love God, they show up, they sing some songs, they hear a sermon preached, and they, then they walk out the door and do something totally different. Friends, this can't be the case. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We must be undivided in our affections and our attention. What does that mean? Well, first, it means that you invest your thoughts and your time into knowing God. And this is the call of every believer, right? To spend time in God's Word, to spend time with others who know God and love God and can encourage you to do the same. Jeremiah 9, 23-25 says this, Thus says the Lord, let the wise man boast, or let the wise man boast in, not boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts in or boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Because last week when we were thinking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we were like, what does that look like? We concluded that in part, it looks like seeing God's commands as a grace to us, that they show us who God is. They demonstrate to us who God is, and then, subsequently, who God intends us to be. Again, he doesn't give us this arbitrary set of rules to follow, but commands, uh, that his commands allow us to reflect him more clearly because his commands are rooted in who he is. But if you're never in God's word, you won't know what he graciously communicates to us about who he is. We won't know these things. Cultural Christianity seeks God when things aren't going well. A quick, please help me, God, hoping that I will intervene in a dramatic way. It's like the, 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 the film, the, the timeless 1994 classic film, Angels in the Outfield. The kid prays God, there's a joke, God, if there is a God, and you're a man or a woman, if you're listening, I'd really like a family. My dad says that it'll only happen if the angels win the pennant, the baseball team, I mean, so maybe you can help them win a little. Amen. Oh, a woman also. It's been a while since I've seen that movie. But that immediately came to mind. This is what cultural Christianity says. When there's something that goes wrong, we seek after God. But when everything's going just fine, or we feel like we got everything under control, we're not going to do it. This is not a picture of the one who hungers and thirsts. But the followers of Jesus reject that notion because it's convenience-based. It's the idea of God as a vending machine. Radical followers of Jesus set aside the pursuit of temporary pleasure for lasting one. 
They say along with King David, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's commands make known to us the path of life. By understanding and living by them, we enter into complete joy because in them we know God. So that's the, that's the first thing then, this morning. The first thing. The second then is to, it means to recognize that our own inclination or bent is to put other things above God. King David also writes in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. David here assumes that there are two types of people. Who's with clean hands and a pure heart, and one who lifts up his soul to what is false and swears deceitfully. This is the first. The first is the, this first is the one Jesus is talking about, right? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, the blessed one, the one with a pure heart. The second man is divided. He's an impure person whose affections and whose attention go elsewhere. This one says, I love God, I know God, all while loving other things is ultimate, thereby lacking purity of heart. For the undivided one, the one with the pure heart, it is the one who is blessed because he or she will ascend the hill of the Lord. Right? The promise at the end of verse 8, for they shall see God. This is the one who will ascend the hill of the Lord, who will stand in his holy place. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So in conclusion then this morning, just, just one final thought for you. I'm just going to give you one, one thought. It's not, it's not hard to see that the example of these two Beatitudes along with the others is found in, in Jesus, in the person of Jesus. Our hope lies not in our ability to obtain some standard of mercy and a purity of heart in our own strength. That's not where our hope lies. But it's rather to see that Jesus kept these things perfectly so that we don't have to. Jesus kept these things perfectly. He was perfectly merciful. He was completely undivided in his affections and in his intention. And now, because of his work, right? because of what he did, we've been given the power through the Spirit to live in line with these. We've been given the power through the Spirit of Christ to live in step with blessed over... In step with the identity that we've been given as merciful ones and those who are pure in heart. And Jesus is merciful, as we noted about the Good Samaritan. We get, to, we get to reflect him in this. We get to reflect him in this. We get to reflect the way that he deals with the effects of sin here on earth. When your co-worker gets hurt, can't cook for himself, can't provide for himself, you can offer relief from the, uh, the effects of sin by, by helping him make ends meet, by bringing him meals. When you're Kids are bullied at school. You can offer relief from the effects of sin by reminding them that God created them in His image and the truth of who they are in Jesus. When your parents get old and fragile and no longer able to care for themselves, you can offer relief from the effects of sin, opening your home to them, demonstrating love to them when death draws near and when society has or says that they have no more value. We need to reflect God's mercy by painting a kingdom portrait that deals with the effects of sin, pointing to a day when those effects will be eradicated entirely. 
Jesus is pure in heart. He's undivided in his affection and his intention. God is undivided towards us, friends. God is undivided towards us. We get to reflect God in an undivided affection and an undivided attention. We get to be totally committed to others. This isn't burdensome like John writes in 1 John 5. This is not burdensome to us. It is a joy that we get to move outside of ourselves and be totally committed to others because Jesus is totally committed to us. So much that he died our rightful death. Do you think that someone who is divided towards you, sort of had mixed feelings about you, would have died on your behalf? No. His affection was for the Father, and his intention was on bringing him glory. It's God's aim to set you apart, to make you holy, and Jesus did that by his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. In doing so, he brought his heavenly Father glory by perfectly being perfectly obedient to his Father's will. And now as God's children, as those who have been welcomed into God's family, we don't seek to bring ourselves glory as we did before. But as new creations, we are free to bring him glory first. We bring God glory in an undivided way, not by existing for ourselves, but existing for others. Putting others' interests over the interests, our own interests. Just like Jesus did. When he descended from heaven and he gave up everything, when he emptied himself, like Paul talks about in Philippians 2. Jesus didn't make a pros and cons list. I'm sure I see the cons here. He's undivided, unmixed, he's pure in heart. So the call then for us is to reflect God's unwavering commitment to set us apart by being pure in heart. By being undivided in our affections and undivided in our attention. So God shows us His mercy in the person of Christ. We reflect that mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. God is undivided in His pursuit of restoring us to right relationship with Him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray.